0: Welcome to the Smart Driving Cars Podcast. This edition is sponsored by the Smart ETF's Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. For more information, head to motoetf.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi again, Alan. Uh, Good afternoon, Fred. Good afternoon, and we're happy to have with us today from the Safe Kids Worldwide Consortium, Technical Advisor Lori Walker. We appreciate you taking the time, Lori.
1: Thanks, Fred. And Alan, nice to talk with you.
2: And great having you on, Lori.
0: Well, Lori, I'll start you out with a a little background on Safe Kids Worldwide and the role that you envision for the organization when it comes to autonomous transportation.
1: Yeah, thanks for this opportunity. Safe Kids is a global nonprofit, and um, our goal is to protect kids from injuries that we can anticipate. And um, we're recognized for the work that we do with families. We do it usually at a grassroots level through 400 coalitions in the United States, And we work also in about 30 countries, in hospitals, with police departments, with fire rescue, with uh, health educators, all sorts of folks that are working at the community health and uh, safety level. And we began looking at this issue and uh, realized that nobody was really talking about kids. A lot of uh, hoopla about uh, AVs, but not very much about kids. So that's why we're in the game.
0: So what are some of the issues with kids and autonomous vehicles that are of most concern here?
1: Sure. I think one of, the, one of the biggest concerns is that nobody's been talking about it. And I happen to be old enough to have lived through the time when we had airbags that were introduced into vehicles. And this cultural norm was for moms to hold their babies uh, in their laps in the front seat or to put a car seat in the front seat when they were driving. And very little was known about the airbag and what it was going to mean to young children. We heard all about what it was going to do for adults and reduce injuries and uh, prevent death, but we didn't know what was really going to happen with kids. Not much had happened. And it took having about 90 children die in front seats of cars when the airbag struck their rear-facing car seats for people to wake up and realize that, wow, this wasn't going to work. We needed to change the paradigm. We needed to get families to do something different. And we ended up moving children from front seats to back seats, which has a a whole other different uh, set of issues. So that's just one thing that we wanted to be sure that everything related to kids was identified and studied and based in science before we told people, yeah, these are safe to use because we wanted to be sure they were safe for all users.
0: So what kinds of things are of concern here? You, you've had a, a blue ribbon panel looking at this, right?
1: Sure. And and uh, that was one thing that we're concerned with is that children are um, generally looked at as babies. And if you, if you consider babies in cars, they ride for the first two years rear-facing at a semi-reclined position, typically with an adult in uh, close proximity. And uh, toddlers change to forward-facing. So you use a different product for kids as they come up through the size, weight, and developmental stage. And then we get to kids that are in booster seats, and each one of these seats will perform differently if you have an interior that's different than how we are testing car seats today. Some of the pictures that we've seen look like living rooms, use uh, captain's chairs that swivel, and all of these little tiny factors that look so attractive to adults can complicate how a child safety product would work to protect children in cars. Um, one of the other issues that we we developed um, you know an interest in was when we started talking to first responders and the question about well what would happen if a child was unaccompanied in one of these vehicles you use a you use your phone to to call the vehicle to come to a location the child enters the vehicle it's programmed to go to a different location and now you have a child, in a car, in a vehicle, completely alone. And when people say, oh, that would never happen, let me tell you, I've worked in the field over 30 years and I've seen incredible things that people have done when they think they're protecting their children, they modify, they jury rig, they do all sorts of things. So we're not saying kids shouldn't ride in these vehicles. We're saying, yes, but let's consider the needs of kids and make sure that that gets addressed. And our blue ribbon panel did that. We brought in 17 high-level transportation and child development specialists, and we laid it out what are the things that we need to be concerned with as laws are written, as regulations are revised, as products are designed, as as um, marketing occurs to get people involved. We just want to be sure we're at the front end of this and not racing to change things after they're released. So that's what our Blue Ribbon Panel came up with, eight big recommendations.
0: And Alan, for, for you, I mean, the idea of getting communities involved from the outset here, uh, near and dear to your heart.
2: <laughs> uh, Fred, this is uh, really wonderful, as we've been discussing uh, with respect to these technologies. One really has to be discussing with the communities. And in fact, what uh, what uh, Lori's doing here, especially dealing with with uh, very young children, uh, is extremely important. It was really unfortunate when we came out with airbags that, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And nobody would have ever thought that an airbag coming, uh, in, 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 coming out in a passenger seat would ever kill a child. Uh, but all of a sudden, oh, my goodness, we didn't think of that one. And so it's a very good thing that at least with these vehicles, uh, one can think about that. I'd also point out is that with older children, they are most definitely going to be riding in these things alone uh, because they can't drive, uh, at least in many states, until they're 17 years old. And so until they're that old, they're being chauffeured around by their parents and who knows what. or not getting to their soccer games and whatever. And in some sense, uh, the opportunities um, uh, to basically use these uh, mobility machines, uh, to uh, basically get kids uh, to the library to, to soccer games or from soccer games and so on is really there. So they will be riding alone or with other kids. Uh, so that is definitely a use case that's out there that, that needs to be considered. And I guess I was going to ask, Lori, you, you mean that some of the champagne that you see in some of these
1: cars isn't for the kids? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's that's what I am saying. And, and we're not saying that you shouldn't have champagne in cars. But, you know, think about it. We have 50 states that have laws that say drivers are responsible for their child occupants. But those laws will have to change when you have no driver, a steering wheel or pedals or even a front seat. And oh, so I- who is responsible. And maybe it is that that parent who's imbibed a little too much and who's unconscious in a, in a vehicle with a, a, a young toddler or child in the vehicle. So who's who's responsible? And those are the things we wanna develop guidance from these, these major child specialists. And I, I should say the Blue Ribbon Panel developed eight recommendations. And one of those was to develop a consortium of people, again, a more diverse group than the first group of Blue Ribbon Panel in the consortium to actually develop guidance for a variety of different settings and use cases, so that when these are considered, there will be some kind of a platform for that that's been developed going into it, as opposed to after the fact when we've had a fatality or injury.
2: Uh, absolutely, that that needs to be done, and and. Um... Um, of course, I, I'm, I'm uh, out there saying that in fact, these vehicles won't be available for, for private consumption. There, there won't be uh, uh, consumer versions of these things. There will actually be parts of fleets that are operated uh, to provide the mobility. But there, it's it's the operator that's, that's basically providing the mobility that ends up having the responsibility. And they have to be able uh, to deal and be prepared Uh, to have uh, children in these vehicles as well as having adults and so on use them for mobility. Uh, so it's it's very important that these issues be discussed uh, now so that the, the the designs can actually incorporate them uh before the fact because retrofitting is very expensive and as we've seen in our cars what do we have uh on the um on the um, uh, windscreen and, and and above us and, and uh, on the visor, on the shade right? on the visor there's this yellow sticker saying you know telling you uh, how dangerous uh, the the airbag is. Why? Because uh, because we didn't know what we didn't know. And we didn't take into a, that account in the design and therefore it had to be retrofitted. So it's very good that you're out there uh, making sure that we're not in a retrofit strategy. Uh, some years from now, but in fact, have taken account of these issues uh, before the fact, and, and they, we've woven them in appropriately in the design. And this has to be done not only for for the young, it has to be done for the for the old, and it has to be done for for those that don't have necessarily the all the capabilities that those of us that drive uh, tend to have. So uh, we absolutely need to be... Uh, Uh, looking at these things from the beginning.
0: Any response from industry as as of yet, Lori, that you can talk about?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, it's interesting. Our consortium has uh, not only domestic um, involvement, but we also have some international involvement Uh, from people who had uh, recruited um, through uh, LinkedIn and through Facebook and from other places to join the consortium. And we did not limit it to the United States, but we also have manufacturers. We have representatives from the child restraint industry, from the vehicle industry, um, in addition to the the legal field, weighing in and telling us, you know, this is what we'd be looking for in cases where You know, maybe due diligence was not further uh, enhanced prior to the release of a product, and um, we're we're looking at it from the health, medical, uh, first responder, a lot of different perspectives. We have 27 organizations that are on the consortium, divided into two working groups: one that's looking at policy. In relative to law enforcement and regulations. And then we have a second group that's looking at education to the public and uh, outreach. How do we get the message out there when we have a message that is of value to everyone?
0: Where can people yeah. go to get more info on, on what you're doing there with the
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great, um, great question. Uh, safekids.org. And we have a page dedicated to children in autonomous vehicles. It's called Kids in AVs. It's on the top toolbar to the far left. And we have what's called a, a Kids in AVs interest group. These are folks that have expressed interest in following the work of the consortium. And we'll be sending quarterly updates uh, we've just recently submitted language to um, Common Court in uh, London. They, they want to know more about this. We've just finished research with uh, some researchers in Australia and in the United States. And so we want to make sure that this information gets out there for people to see. So safekids.org, look for the kids in AVs uh, opportunities there.
0: Well, congratulations, Laurie, on the work that you're doing there.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It's really exciting. Yes, Laurie, this has been really wonderful.
2: Uh, absolutely. Uh, my only uh, sort of slight comment on this is that you really need to consider uh, two versions of these, uh, the ones that that might be owned by consumers. And the ones that might be out there uh, being provided by um, a, a mobility operator, uh, they're quite different. Uh, and, and I think in the way they, they address children and how uh, children are to be treated, I think one needs to be very careful in terms of, of dealing with each of those. And they really deserve a, a separate attention.
0: Great point, Alan. We'll continue in just a moment, but uh, this is a good time to remind you about our sponsor, the Smart ETFs. Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. You can get more information at motoetf.com. Investors, by the way, have been taking advantage of ETFs or exchange traded funds as a way to spread risk while investing in a category of stocks. MOTO is focused on transportation and mobility, just like we are here on this podcast. So we encourage you to investigate. Alan, in the latest edition of the Smart Driving Car Newsletter, Waymo is making some headlines again. First, with its introduction of the fifth generation of Waymo Driver, upgraded cameras, radar and lidar with the ability now to see a stop sign, they're saying, more than 1,600 feet away. And Waymo is saying it has simplified the design and manufacturing process to be production ready at a cost that's about half of the previous generation sounds like pretty big news.
2: Yeah, I think all that is big news on the sensors, although, you know, I don't know why you want really want to see a stop sign that far ahead. How fast are you really going? And uh, in many situations, uh, my goodness, you can't see around corners. There isn't a straight shot that that's that long, but whatever. Um, I think that's good. Basically, what it, it means is that they're able to Uh, discern from the resolution of their cameras and also with their lidars an expectation of a stop sign i don't know to what extent they're relying on on um, hd maps or maps uh, to anticipate that stop sign and then look for it in the images and so on and so forth Uh, but um, uh, good i mean i think it gives good Good press. I think what's more important about their fifth generation is that it probably includes uh, more of the sort of deep learning uh, uh, neural network um, uh, uh, computations, and um, and the the uh, comments about their lidar is of course uh, also some good news, but. uh, uh, they must be very happy with the fifth generation. It must be better than the fourth, and um, and my goodness, the sixth and the seventh will even be better, probably.
0: And they're attracting some funding from outside of Google. Waymo announced this week the the first external round of fundraising, bringing in two and a quarter billion dollars.
2: Uh, yes, I, I I guess that's a, a way for them to basically uh, show. Uh, the rest of, of Alphabet, that in fact, uh, uh, they have a serious product here and that others uh, really consider them to uh, to have a, a serious product. Um, I'm sort of surprised that uh, they d- just then continue to keep it all for themselves. Um, uh, whatever, I guess whenever you get a chance to, to sell at a price uh, that you think is a proper value, you... Um, you uh, take the offer and take the money and run
0: and there's a new ad from Waymo uh, showing and and talking about all the ways self-driving vehicles will be used and it sounds like
3: this say hello to Waymo the world's most experienced driver the Waymo driver is what we call our self-driving technology It has over a decade of real-world experience and has driven millions of miles. With Waymo 1, we can make it safer and easier for you to get around. So you can spend more time doing what you love. And with Waymo Via, the same driver with the same deep experience can also deliver your packages or save you a trip to the dry cleaners. Or if you run a business, Waymo Via can help you transport whatever you need, making sure shipments arrive right when they're supposed to. This is the Waymo Driver, a driver that's reimagining transportation for all of us.
0: So I guess this is something that for the general public to say, gee whiz, that's pretty cool.
2: Well, again, I think that as we've been discussing Uh, we're getting to a point where the technology works, or we're very close to having uh, the technology working, at least in some operational design domains that encompass um, some real mobility needs. Uh, But what what, um, uh, these systems need is not only for them to work, which means that they're safe, uh, they don't crash or very low probability of crashing. Um, but also that in fact, they're welcomed by the public and the public sees that, uh, that these, uh, mobility machines are in fact, uh, uh valuable to the, their quality, enhance their quality of life, valuable to the community and so on. So now it becomes, it becomes essentially, um, somewhat of a selling point, uh, to customers um these systems are ready to uh, uh, to make you a happy camper and um, uh, look for them um, uh, in your community very um, shortly, so um, in the near term. So um, yeah, that, that's all very good. Uh, they need to be out there. Uh, nobody else is going to publicize uh, their value. Um, except for maybe the two of us, Fred, uh, but, uh, um, you know, so they have to go out and, and now sell the service as, as any other service provider needs to go out there and, and, uh, make the public aware, uh, of their, um, of their services.
0: And you talk all the time when we talked earlier about the need to get the communities behind this and understanding the technology
2: absolutely and and that's that's sort of where we work and as i've I've mentioned uh, several times uh we're working here in in central Jersey to try to get central Jersey communities uh to uh, see that the, that there is valuable to their communities uh to have this kind of mobility and um and if we can create that welcoming environment then it's much easier for uh, for a waymo to come Come to Central Jersey, uh, test to make sure that uh, that their systems work, and under what conditions they work, and under what conditions they don't work, and uh, and offer services on, in the conditions where they work, and that uh, that uh, that uh, operational design domain is big enough to make it attractive to Waymo to to bring in um, uh, many vehicles and operate them, and uh, and then financially attractive. And also attractive to the community; that enhances the quality of life of the individuals that live in that community. So we're trying to do that in Trenton. We're trying to do that in Ewing Township, in Princeton, and Lawrence Township, in Montgomery Township. Uh, basically, working community by community uh, to um, to. Uh, a uh, creative welcoming environment so if it's not waymo it's fort argo or it's gm cruz or it's uh, uh, aurora or or someone will come in and and really use this technology uh, to provide um, um, affordable uh, high quality uh, mobility uh, to these communities and the only way you can do it affordably is by shared ride and um, not having to pay for a driver.
0: You have some interesting comments in in the newsletter, Alan, about a report that Tesla's autopilot is going to detect potholes and map them uh, to help with navigating around them
2: right and and i think it's it's uh, very good uh, that that it detects those things but it it should also be used uh, to detect other things that like uh, uh where are the the um, uh, the lane markings and the stripings uh, good or not good uh where does um does autopilot uh, or whatever they're calling it now um uh, tend to work or not tend to work and all that should be geocoded and 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 uh, made available uh, to uh, uh, to uh, everyone that uh, that that has the system um, and under what um, conditions uh, night uh, uh, hailstorms uh, snowstorms or and so on if if they don't work then then uh, all that information i'm sure um um tesla is is gathering uh and uh, that's fundamental safety and operational conditions uh, uh, really an operational design domain uh, for uh, for auto uh, pilot and um now uh, the reason why tesla may not want to do that is uh, is because if they're then suggesting that it works here uh, and it, uh, for some reason it doesn't work in that situation, then they might be held liable for uh, for misrepresenting uh, the, the capabilities of the system. So they may be a little squirmish about the uh, about releasing that. But but that's that's a heck of a lot more valuable than just where the potholes are.
0: And and you also mentioned the the need to pre- report the information to. Departments of Transportation, let them know where there are these serious issues.
2: Absolutely, I mean they must have known in uh, in the 101 crash that uh, where the National Transportation Safety Board uh, reported on that the crash with the uh, butt end of the New Jersey barrier. Uh, how many Teslas have gone through that that? Uh, um, uh, ramp there. And uh, they must know that the, the systems don't work well there. And uh, the images that they must be capturing from their cameras show that uh, there's no zebra striping inside that gore, and there should be, and, and that their systems have trouble uh, discerning uh, which line to follow. And, and they must have hundreds, if not thousands, of examples of that and they should have reported that to the California Department of Transportation so they get out there with with some paint and fix it. And, and fix it not for Teslas, but fix it for in case I drive there and I can figure out what the heck's going on and, and stay in my lane as opposed to uh, crash and die.
0: Well, speaking of Tesla, uh, a little more competition, maybe some envy. GM's CEO, Mary Barra, this week uh, announced the company will spend – $20 billion over the next five years to bring electric and automated vehicles to market. They're partnering with LG Chem on, on batteries. They're saying to, to boost driving range to 400 miles or more. They're talking about having 20 EV models over the next three years.
2: Great. But I guess what bothered me about that is they're going to bring the Hummer back before they bring a, <laughs> a GM cruise vehicle. I mean, um Okay. I hear you but it it, it in some sense uh, still sounds uh, like your uh, your father's Oldsmobile or the your father's general motors uh once again they could be doing that but what are they gonna do uh bring back the Hummer. um uh how many people lust after
0: know. a Hummer that that doesn't get five miles per gallon? Um, there must be
2: a few. <laughs> what, what are you going to do? Uh, let's put an electric motor in it and have everybody run around in a tank down the road. I, I don't know. Whatever. Um, I'm sorry. Um, um, although their platform, I mean, you, you can see why, why at least the uh, Tesla's excited about about the uh, electric uh, vehicle uh, platform. I mean, it's so simple. Uh, you know, it doesn't have a transmission. It doesn't have pistons. It doesn't have rings. It doesn't have uh, uh, springs and things like that. Uh, you know, how many parts are in an internal combustion engine uh, compared to, you know, some copper around some windings? Uh, an electric motor and you know it's so much more simple and then you can stick one on each wheel or near each wheel and and you don't have to have a transmission automatic or or manual or whatever so you know just from that it just seems as if um, Uh, the electric vehicle and that electric vehicle platform onto which you can put whatever kind of uh, interior body that that you want. Um, It just seems like an enormous opportunity and it's basically uh, what uh, Tesla's riding on these days, at least in part. And the key has been the battery. And it looks like we've made some progress in batteries. And maybe the biggest part of the GM announcement is really the, the progress that they're making on batteries, because uh, that has so been is the Achilles' up. heel. Jiffy
0: lubes will have to change into Jiffy charge stations or something.
2: <laughs> I guess they're – I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, really, when you think about it, uh, <sighs> there's no oil filter. I mean, oh, my goodness. No oil. there's no oil. I used to change my own oil and filter. I haven't done that in a while. I should go back to doing that. (laughs) While you can. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I still can. Yeah.
0: (laughs) The ride share guy is out with an analysis of ride hailing at Los Angeles international airport and the problem of congestion at the curb resulting from the growth in numbers of people using Uber and Lyft. We've, we've seen a lot of that. And, and, uh, I guess the question is, what, what do we do?
2: Well, I've, I found that report to be a very good uh, description of what uh, what goes on at LAX. I, I was out in, in LAX um, a week or so ago, and I observed it, uh, not very deeply, but I observed it uh, a little bit. And, and they have done a, a very good job with... With that remote facility, the the buses that take you from the from the the uh, baggage areas uh, to that facility, they seem to run like one every minute or so. I mean, they really are frequent, uh, so it's not that much of a hassle there. I'm just enormously disappointed that that they haven't instituted a much more Uh, aggressive ride-sharing program. Uh, You know, it it really is. It's focused on on providing rides to a single individual. Uh, You know, I've complained about the the taxi uh, operation at the Las Vegas Airport for CES, they have this long line of people waiting for taxis. They bring them in 10 at a time. Uh, but there's no attempt uh, by anybody to try to get people to to share rides. And how many different places are you going to in, in Las Vegas? I mean, they could easily uh, you know, have an average vehicle occupancy of, of three or something like that. But of course the cab drivers don't want it because that reduces the demand for, for their service. They much prefer having one person in it. And they they, they don't want to deal with the fact that, oh, you're taking her first. What about me? Uh, you know, what do I look like? Uh, chop liver here. I mean, well, you know, what's going on? Uh, so, um, um uh there and 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 the efforts at at lax are 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 very minimal i mean if if they had a priority line that if you shared a vehicle uh you got into a vehicle earlier uh rather than if you really wanted a vehicle by yourself then uh, then you have to wait for the people that uh, that are sharing vehicles that get theirs before you get into yours my goodness, everybody would want to share vehicles because, you know, time is the important measure. But of course, you know, the very important executives would say, Oh my goodness, I'm not riding with them. Whatever. Um, I don't know. I I was disappointed in that part of it, even though the whole purpose of, of, of their expose there was to do ride sharing, um, that's how you reduce the demand for vehicles. That's how you re- reduce congestion. And, um, and that's how you make it more efficient. And so the opportunities for ride sharing should go all the way up until you're about to get in the vehicle. Um, I point out in the newsletter, you know, th- this kind of ride sh- dynamic ride sharing um, uh, all, all the way until you get into a vehicle, uh, existed. I think it still exists, I haven't used it, uh, at, um, at Union Station in, in uh, Washington, D.C., in the taxi line since at least 1975, because I think it was in 1975 that I sent a bunch of students uh, down there to basically just uh, uh, collect data as to how efficient the, the, the concierge person at the taxi line was in assigning uh, people to cabs. Uh, because they bring in a string of cabs, three, four, five of them, and then um and then the, the concierge would ask you where you're going and depending on where you're going, they tell you to get in in cab one, two, three, or four. and if you're going in the same direction as as somebody that he put in cab one, he'd tell you to to get in the in the in the cab one with, with that person and and that that's existed. At least uh, since uh, 1975, it was all manual by the concierge. He he didn't have computer assistance. And boy, did he do an efficient job. Um, And so just think what you could do with a computer that is sitting there on your phone uh, doing that to you as you're standing waiting there. Um, And and if you say, oh, my goodness, we don't have – we have latency in in that – Well, put 5G at the airport and you won't have the latency. Anyway, whatever.
0: Well, that that perfect pronunciation of concierge leads us to this. Uh, A high court in France has ruled that a former Uber driver should have been considered an employee instead of a self-employed partner since the driver couldn't build their own customer base and couldn't set prices. You had some comments about that.
2: Well, you know, that's, that's not good news for Uber and Lyft. Uh, If it spreads from uh, out of France to the other countries, that's really bad news because, because at some point they're going to be forced to pay these drivers a living wage and, and pay, you know, the appropriate taxes that one has to pay if one has employees. And so the affordability opportunities uh, for them are just, you know, disappearing. So um, this is, uh, I don't know if it's another nail in, in, the, in the coffin of, of Uber and Lyft, but it certainly is going to keep them from, from, um, from scaling and, and becoming something more significant than they are now. We are probably at peak Uber and Lyft right now. And the only way it's going to get beyond peak, peak peak uh, uber lyft or where we are today is if they in fact do driverless uh mobility and uh, then of course it's a it's a whole new ball game because you don't have you don't have the employee now i don't know if all of a sudden that, that french court is gonna say hey uh, those those uh, actuators and that code that you have in there that's an employee, and 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 they can go en grève and go on strike. And I, you know, uh, that might happen in France, uh, but I, I don't, you know, en grève, um, uh, you know, that's, that doesn't uh, that doesn't happen in too many other places. Well, st- staying <laughs> staying
0: in Europe, our friend Michael Senna has another great edition of the Dispatcher out, with uh, the headline there reading the U.S. and EU can still save their car industries another thoughtful and well-written addition
2: very thoughtful addition on on really the state of the of the uh the um, legacy uh, auto industry and the way it's been operating and it's you know it's it's really done a very good job in in doing what it needs to do and the whatever the the sale and and maintenance and uh, really uh, high reliability and and quality of uh, uh associated with producing what uh, 30 uh, million vehicles a year or 40 million vehicles a year and keeping them going in one way or another for you know lifetimes that that are substantially above 10 years uh so you know, and creating a number of jobs and the economy and and, uh, and quality of life that it's created for uh, large portions of the population. Uh, unfortunately, left a few behind and some others are out there saying, well, you know, maybe there's some other ways to do it. And then you have us out there saying, well, you know, if we have a mobility machines, then then um, the consumer version of these things where we own them, maintain them, are responsible for them and then have to drive them. And if something happens, uh, the bug stops with us um, uh, saying that the, that may not be um, the best way that the, the future should look. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, it's under some, some amount of pressure. Um, and I think he does a wonderful job in presenting that. Everybody should read it.
0: And finally, Alan, uh, former Uber self-driving head Anthony Lewandowski has filed for bankruptcy protection after a court awarded him or ordered him to pay $179 million to Google, a previous employer, and he was accused of taking some information along with him.
2: Uh, yes, well, what can one say? Uh um, I guess he put his hand in the cookie jar and he got caught. And I, that's what happens if you go put your hand in the cookie jar. And, get uh, you know, uh, it's not that you shouldn't get caught. You shouldn't put your hand in the cookie jar.
0: And with that, that's going to wrap up this edition. Uh, thanks to our sponsor, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF. The ticker symbol for the ETF is MOTO and more information is available at M-O-T-O-E-T-F dot com. We want to thank Lori Walker with the Safe Kids Worldwide Consortium for being here with us today. More information is safekids.org And Alan, uh, before we sign off here, we want to remind our listeners again about the upcoming fourth annual Princeton Smart Driving Car Summit, uh, May 19th to 21st. And you've got a great agenda planned.
2: Yeah, we have a great agenda and again it was great having Lori uh, on today because in fact, you know, she was bringing out with one uh, sector of of the population that in fact in the design of these vehicles and how they're going to operate and what the interiors look like and 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 uh, and how they're going to be configured one has to take into account the Uh, children, uh, very small children, as well as children all the way up to certainly the ages of of 15, 16, and 17, uh, that in fact are going to have their quality of life substantially improved by these uh, simply because they're going to be able to be much more mobile in the community rather than being chauffeured by their parents or their uh, more uh, senior siblings. And um, and so I think uh, uh, dealing with these issues early rather than late is very important. And, uh, and one of the major workshops at the summit is going to deal with uh, the interface with uh, these individuals not only uh, the young but the old and and uh, and also um, uh, the economically disadvantaged and uh, and physically disadvantaged and so these are these are the, the the people that that can really benefit from this technology and um, and of course the rest of us can too that have been much more fortunate so um, um, uh, we're of course continuing forward. Hopefully, all this uh, that's going on with uh, with the um, uh, the viral version uh, of pneumonia that is out there is um, is uh, and, and the virus will be uh, will be um, cleaned up by um, by the middle of May. Don't know how that's going to happen, but my goodness, we can't we can't go uh, you know two and a half months. Uh, with uh, the cancellations, uh, uh, I canceled two trips uh, this week uh, because of it. Uh, I can't imagine what the hospitality industry is uh, is feeling with, with respect to all of this. Um, and um, um, so um, um, hopefully it's going to get uh, cleaned up uh, in time for our summit, uh, but not just for our summit, but uh, for everybody else. And um, and you can come to Princeton and uh, and and enjoy um, smart driving cars.
0: And you can get more information about the summit at smartdrivingcar.com. That's where you can find us. Also on Anchor FM, Spotify, TuneIn, Apple, Google, Spreaker, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. Your smart speaker can play us too. And you can find my tech reports at textation.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with Alan Kornhauser. Thank you for listening.
2: And thank you, everyone, and enjoy the evening.